Hello, I'm Oliver Collins, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood. If you're a new listener, then welcome. If you downloaded the podcast to indulge in a bit of nostalgia for what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain, and the huge part television played in our lives during that decade, well, you're in the right place. If you're expecting something else, then I'm afraid you're going to be a bit disappointed. I never cease to be amazed by the fact that many of my reminiscences of childhood and the TV that went with it strike a chord with so many of you. And that's only based on those of you who've got in touch. I'd love to hear from more of you about your childhood memories and what it was like for you in the 1970s. In spite of the fact that it is now a long time ago, some elements of my childhood still seem like they only happened yesterday. A stark contrast to what sometimes happens to me when I go to the supermarket and can't remember for the life of me what I've gone there to buy. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, I love hearing your memories and hearing what memories you have of your own 70s TV childhoods. So please get in touch via our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet at 70s TV Childhood Or you can email me directly, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. I'm indebted to one of our listeners, John from Cheshire, who dropped me a line to talk about the Double Deckers, a programme much loved by many of us, including Ross, who joined us as a guest on our Sporting Life episode. I was thinking, though, that ones that were probably the most impressionable for me growing up were were the live-action uh, series and I guess that's just what I, I grew up preferring so shows like you know the double deckers sitting in the old red London bus and using it as their den in a in an old you know junkyard that's where that's where I wanted to be you know with a gang of friends John wrote to me telling me how much he enjoyed the show and also how sad it was that Douglas Simmons who played Donut in the show was no longer with us This was news to me as I hadn't noticed any press coverage of his passing, but what it did do was prompt me, thanks to a link from John, to watch the opening sequence of the programme on the internet. I have to say that watching that famous opening sequence has been quite a revelation. 
To the best of my knowledge, I haven't watched that for at least 45 years, but I recognise every word of the theme tune, every action shown from the clever device used to access the gang's clubhouse, down to the toy tiger carried around by Tiger, the little girl who was one of the gang. What also impressed me was how well it was made. Compared to some of the more amateurish children's shows that we had to endure at that time, the stars were talented actors and singers, the sets were realistic and didn't look like they were about to collapse, unlike those in many other shows, most notably Crossroads. But the most amazing thing about the opening sequence was that it was in colour. I had never, ever seen that in colour before. And I have to say, it looked brilliant, shot in a real, really great cinematic style. I'd always thought that The Double Deckers was a production of the Children's Film Foundation. I almost said Children's Television Workshop then, as in Sesame Street, brought to you by the letter H and the number two. Um, But I was mistaken. The Double Deckers was a co-production between a British film company, Century Films, and the Hollywood powerhouse of 20th Century Fox. And each episode is like a short film in itself. The whole premise was around a gang whose HQ was in a secret junkyard, which had a double-decker bus in it, hence the name. It was made between 1970 and 1971, and only 17 episodes were ever broadcast, but it remains one of those shows which everyone of a certain age remembers. The double-deckers were the ultimate in aspirational gangs to be part of, and their adventures seemed so exciting to a generation of us sat around watching during the school holidays, which, again, was where the show was shown again and again and again for many years. Can you remember who was in the gang? Well, for once, I haven't relied on my memory, as I've cheated a bit, and I've looked this up, because I didn't want to miss anybody out. So who were the double-deckers? First off was Scooper played by Peter Firth, later to be Spy Chief Harry Pierce in Spooks. Scooper, not really sure about that for a nickname, was the de facto leader of the gang, and to be honest, a a bit of a goody two-shoes from what I remember. He was joined by Spring, who was an early, positive, black role model for British children, and who was played by Brinsley Ford, who at the time was the leading black child actor on British TV, appearing not only as one of the double-deckers, but also in Please Sir, and the remarkable and extremely haunting Georgian House, a drama well ahead of its time, which sent two children back in time to come to the rescue of a slave played by Brinsley. Oh, and he then famously went on to found and be the lead singer of the band Aswad. So all in all, quite a guy. Other gang members were Billy, played by Gillian Bailey, who was, I suppose, a a sort of feminist in that she loved doing all the sorts of things that the boys did, and wore dungarees from time to time. And she was joined by Debbie Russ, who played Tiger, the youngest of the, the gang, who I mentioned earlier, who also carried round a tiger. Making up the rest of the gang were Styx, an American, presumably introduced to keep US audiences happy, who was played by Bruce Clark. Brains, played by Michael Audrison, who was obviously the the brains and pretty nerdy at that. 
the brains of the group who came up with fantastic inventions, not all of which went entirely to plan, I seem to remember. And finally, there was Donut, the rather unimaginatively named Fat Boy, who was always tucking into food and providing a bit of body-shaming comedy moments throughout. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, Douglas Simmons, who played Donut, died in 2011, aged just 53. But his and the gang's antics will live on long into my memory. I suppose, looking back now, the show was trying to cash in on the swinging London vibe of the mid to late 1960s, and the double-deckers were like a sort of junior version of the Monkeys or the Beatles, getting up to lots of zany adventures, whilst retreating back to their den every now and again. Whatever vibe the producers were looking for, it was certainly a big hit with me and my generation. I suspect there were only 17 episodes made because it was so expensive to film, because there were lots of outdoor filming shots, big casts, and only a number of crazy devices invented by brains to be built and paid for. The double-deckers was a highlight of the school holiday TV schedules. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, the BBC used to run a slate of morning programmes for children during the school holidays. And, presumably once again due to money being tight, used to run the same shows again and again and again. Typical programmes included the banana splits, as discussed with our listener Stuart in our episode Size of an Elephant. The double-deckers, Hergé's Adventures of Tintin, and of course, the labyrinthinely plotted and very poorly dubbed Flashing Blade, which is one of my personal favourites. As I said before, this diet of the same shows repeated again and again was lapped up by a generation of children, as we didn't really have anything else to watch. But all of these repeats were a banquet of viewing compared to the few days of the year when the British broadcasters just gave up and produced some of the most uninspired programming of the 1970s. Yes, I'm talking about bank holiday television. For those listening outside of the UK, we call our public holidays bank holidays. I don't know why. Presumably at some point in the dim and distant past, the idea of the British doing without the services of a bank for one day was very important. Anyway, the bank holiday was, from the early 20th century, an important fixture in the UK calendar, as it represented an all-too-rare opportunity for working people to have a day off for themselves and their families. In those days, there was no minimum of 20 days holiday per person, You had to take your week or two weeks, if you were lucky, when your place of work closed down in the summer. Particularly in the industrial north, whole towns would take the same week off and descend en masse to the seaside resorts of Blackpool in the west or Scarborough in the east, and you and your family would spend a week staying in a bed and breakfast and walking up and down the prom, meeting up with your friends, your neighbours and your work colleagues. This pattern will be repeated on Bank Holiday Mondays. Hundreds of thousands of people will travel to the coastal resorts for a day out by train, coach or car. 
desperate to escape the factory smoke and to get some fresh sea air. By the time we get to the 1970s, the idea of factory holiday weeks was starting to decline, but British families still enthusiastically embraced the idea of going to the coast on the bank holiday. My family never did, and I always felt a bit jealous of my school friends, who had spent the bank holiday in Blackpool, or even Morecambe, which sounded very glamorous. I remember pleading with my parents to let us go to Blackpool, and finally, after they had given in to my badgering, we spent a wet weekend in November on the Fylde coast, and my longing for Blackpool was satisfied. Later in my life, I spent seven years living in Fleetwood, just north of Blackpool, but that is another story. Oh, and by the way, the idea of going on holiday during half-term school holidays simply didn't exist in the 1970s. Holidays were the summer break, and why would any self-respecting family want to go away at any other time? As I didn't join the hordes heading off to the seaside, I stayed at home and watched some terrible TV. As I said earlier, I think that the TV schedulers just assumed everyone had gone to the beach, so didn't even bother trying to fill the bank holiday schedules with anything remotely original or entertaining. In fact, they'd probably all gone to Brighton as well. At the time of recording, we've recently had our UK spring bank holiday, which falls on the last Monday in May. So I thought I'd take a look at what was on TV this year and compare it to the bank holiday in times gone by. So let's have a look at the listings for this year. Now, what have we got? Right. We've got a morning full of reality TV programmes on BBC One, like Homes Under the Hammer, which unfortunately is not an Arthur Conan Doyle detective mystery, but instead it's a programme about buying near-derelict houses at auction and seeing how much money the buyers can waste before selling the place on. This is followed by The Sheriffs Are Coming, which sounds like a good old-fashioned Western adventure, but is, in fact, a show about bailiffs repossessing houses and collecting debts. We've then got Bargain Hunt, which I find so depressing I won't even try and explain it. It seems that today's schedules also fill the bank holiday schedule with dross, although rather worryingly, just looking at the Radio Times, these shows are on every day, bank holiday or not. Perhaps the afternoon will be more entertaining. Oh, no. Um, More reality shows, including Money for Nothing, where items are saved from the rubbish tip, and turned into cheechy bits of furniture, which people with more money than sense will pay several hundred pounds for. Hence, money for nothing. Then we've got Escape to the Country, where people from London sell their pokey flat in Walthamstow and use the proceeds to buy a farm in Herefordshire, whilst finding every excuse to insult and patronise the locals. And we then round off with Garden Rescue, whatever that is, Antiques Road Trip, and Pointless which rather sums up the afternoon's viewings. At 6pm, we get Wallace and Gromit in a close shave. That's more like it for Bank Holiday Fair. And then we have an evening filled with The One Show, Miranda, EastEnders and Repeat of Faulty Towers. Not very inspiring or holiday-like, really. Well, perhaps the 1970s Bank Holiday schedules were not as dire as I remember when compared to today. Shall we take a look? Now, I've got the Radio Times from May the 29th, 1972 here. So let's 
let's have a look. Okay, so we open up at 9.45am with Trumpton and an episode called Cuthbert's Morning Off. That's a solid start, given it's impossible to go wrong with Brian Kent. At 10 o'clock, we've got Champion the Wonder Horse, followed by The Adventures of Parsley. I'm a very friendly lion called Parsley. All good so far. At 10.30, we've got a bit of natural history with Soper at Large, featuring the great Tony Soper in the Cairngorms. Very educational. And this is then followed by The Magic Roundabout. Needless to say, every show that's been on this morning so far is a repeat, as is the next one. A classic Laurel and Hardy film, Be Big, where the boys try to deceive their wives so they can attend a stag party at their lodge, etc., 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 etc. What next? We then go off to Headingley to watch the Roses cricket match between Lancashire and Yorkshire, which is followed by Bank Holiday Grandstand, offering an afternoon sport, including highlights of the Indianapolis 500, horse racing from Doncaster, athletics, and more cricket. This fills up the whole afternoon schedule before a traditional bank holiday treat at 5pm, the Harlem Globetrotters. For many of us at this time, basketball and the Harlem Globetrotters meant one and the same thing, although it is slightly worrying to read the programme details from the Radio Times, and I quote, The world's most renowned basketball team display their comedy and skill against the Boston Rockets. Meadowlark Lemon and his team of stars from the popular cartoon series come to life at Wembley Pool. Hmm. Now, if I'd have actually read that as a five and six-year-old, I'd have been very confused. You mean the cartoon characters in the cartoon version of the Harlem Globetrotters, which was very popular at the time, have actually come to life and come to London? Anyway, back to the schedules. After the larks and skills of Harlem's finest, we have a news bulletin, followed by the programme for me which sums up the banality of bank holiday television. Disney time. Now, don't get me wrong. I loved Disney films and cartoons, and I got my Donald and Mickey comic every week, as I've referred to in a previous episode. But Disney time was just a clip show where some slightly awkward celebrity... This time, the great Terry Thomas. Oh, I say, hard cheese. Linked together clips of Disney films for no purpose other than to irritate children who were watching and would really rather like to see the whole film. After Disney time, we get 45 minutes of the Red Arrows and then the highlight of the evening schedule is a Cliff Richard film, Wonderful Life, in which Johnny and his friends, i.e. Cliff and the Shadows, lose their jobs on a cruise ship, and then have some adventures in the Canary Islands. And that's about it for the day. As I said before, I think the schedulers decided to stick on a load of repeats and disappear to the seaside with everyone else. But was 1972 typical of other years? Well, I've looked at the radio times for the next couple of years, and it is quite incredible. 1973's Spring Bank Holiday brings us a morning of Joe, very groovy 70s children's animation, The Magic Roundabout, The Banana Split, Laurel and Hardy, and an afternoon of sport in Bank Holiday Grandstand featuring motor racing, horse racing and athletics. 
After news bulletin, guess what we have? The Harlem Globetrotters turning from cartoon characters into real athletes, followed by Disney time, this time with John Pertwee, who at that time was playing Doctor Who. And then a documentary about the Queen as we approach the 20th anniversary of the coronation. We've then got a film, To Sir With Love, which I must admit is an upgrade on Cliff in the Shadows, but still shows, I think, a lack of effort on the schedulous part. And finally, let's have a look at what 1974 has to offer. Okay, so we've got, oh, in the morning, ah, no, no banana splits. We've got Ragtime with the play school and chock-a-block legend Fred Harris. And then we've got more Roses Cricket, followed by, you guessed, Bank Holiday Grandstand, featuring Frank Moff with hours of horse racing, cricket and athletics. Oh, what a relief. The banana splits are actually on, but they're on after Grandstand at 4.55. Thank goodness for that. And then at 5.45, can you, can you guess what's on? To quote the Radio Times, the world's greatest exponents of basketball skill play against the Washington Generals at the Empire Pool Wembley. Yes, it's the Harlem Globetrotters, again. And following them at 6.15 is, no, I don't really have to tell you, do I? Disney time. This time featuring Don McLean and Peter Glaze from Crackerjack. Crackerjack! And don't tell me I wasn't the only person who did that. Anyway, something a bit different at 7pm. Uh, we've got Bruce Forsyth meets Lulu. And, again, I quote from the Radio Times, a special holiday get-together of two entertainers looking at each other's backgrounds, styles and daydreams in a programme of song, dance and comedy. Well, that all sounds great, with vocal backing from the Tony Mansell singers and the musical director the ever-present Ronnie Hazelhurst and his orchestra. I can feel my feet tapping at the very thought of that. Afterwards, we've got a film, Hellfighters, the John Wayne spectacular based on the life of Red Adair, the oil well fighter. (sighs) I'm not going to look any further, as my initial impressions have been certainly confirmed by what was in the listings. Bank holiday TV in the 1970s was the fag end of the schedule. Most people would either be in a traffic jam going to the beach or in one on their way home, so the schedulers could put on any old tap and nobody would notice. The bank holiday was an exception in 1970s life, where families didn't, in the main, gather around the TV set, but instead were determined to go out and do something to assert their freedom from the factory or from the office. So instead of talking about what was on the TV the night before, Work colleagues could compare traffic delays and wet weather stories the day after the bank holiday. Do you agree that bank holiday TV was dire, or did you love Disney time? And didn't the Washington Generals deserve to win just once against the Harlem Globetrotters? Let me know on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweet at 70stvchildhood, or email Oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Take care. And we'll see you again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood. <laughs>